The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. There is really passionate excitement about the potential for growing products that are better for the consumer, no herbicides and pesticides. Just the whole story of CEA generally and local bounty specifically has been really powerful in our ability to add talent. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 4, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I'm positive you're in the right place. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world, and I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed the last episode, we kicked off season four with Shannon O'Malley of Brick Street Farms. Highly engaging conversation. Make sure you check that out. This week, we speak to Greg Herbert. He's the co-founder and CEO at Local Bounty. Local Bounty is an organization that strives to deliver the freshest locally grown produce in your neighborhood. The company sustainably grows fresh greens and herbs 365 days a year in their greenhouses using 90% less water and 90% less land than conventional agriculture. Today, Craig and I talk about Craig's extensive background in energy, from his time at General Electric to the origins of local bounty. Craig discusses the recent extreme weather and climate and how it has impacted the CEA industry, and he shares his views on leadership and why he chooses to lead through a centralized vision and goal. Finally, Craig speaks to the work Local Bounty is doing to support the UN's Sustainable Development Goals and why he's rooting for all of his competitors in the CEA industry. We're super honored to have a couple of return and new sponsors also for this show. I'll introduce both of them and then we'll jump right into the content. First up, new sponsor, Freight Farms. For those of you not familiar with them, they manufacture and sell the leading vertical hydroponic container farm, the Greenery S. It's built inside a 40-foot shipping container and it uses innovative climate control technology paired with an IoT app called Farmhand to enable anyone to grow fresh food anywhere in the world. We were honored to interview John Friedman way back in season one, episode five, founder and CEO of Freight Farms. 
So make sure you check that episode out if you haven't already. Visit FreightFarms.com forward slash Vertical Farming Podcast to learn more. And return sponsor Indoor AgCon. Whether you're starting up or scaling up, Indoor AgCon can help you grow your vertical farming business. Live and in person this year, the premier trade show and conference for vertical farming and CEA heads to the Hilton Orlando from October 4th through 5th. Explore an expo floor filled with new product resources and business solutions. Attend idea-packed educational sessions led by top CEOs and thought leaders and connect with peers and potential business partners at the networking events. Learn more and take advantage of early bird registration discounts at indoor.ag and save an additional $100 off registration with our promo code VFPOD2021. Excited to read a new review that's come in. This one is from Mr. Monk 21 out of the UK. Empowered me to launch my own. Harry's done an amazing job at getting so many variants of guests from different aspects of vertical farming. Since listening to this back in March and leaving my job, I'm in the process of launching my own urban farm in the UK using hydroponics. The show has inspired me and empowered me to take action. Keep up the great work, Harry. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Monk. I truly appreciate the review. And don't forget, if you'd like to hear yours read out, head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, and I'll be sure to read yours out next. Okay, let's get into this conversation with Craig. So Craig Hurlbert, co-founder and co-CEO of Local Bounty. Thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Harry, great to be with you. Excited. Have you done a lot of podcast interviews lately? I've done a few. Okay. Uh, it seems to be they're ramping up a little bit, a lot of interest in Local Bounty. And uh, so, yes, it's ramping up. But I've really looked forward to this one. I enjoy your work. Thank you so much. It's been a, a fantastic journey. And what I'm doing is as I'm learning about the industry, I'm taking my listeners along for the ride. And so I love telling origin stories. I've got another podcast that I've been doing since 2014. So I love just just follow that curiosity thread. <laughs> I think it takes you a long way. I think it's really important that uh, you know your listeners have an opportunity to kind of hear different perspectives and and really kind of round out their understanding of such an important part of our economy, such an important part of our future just as human beings. So I applaud you for what you're doing. And uh, I've been excited. I've had this one circled on the calendar. No, oh, thank you so much. Uh, where's home for you now? My home residence is Houston, Texas, just north of Houston in the Woodlands. But I was born and raised in Montana. I'm a fourth generation Montana boy. So I come from a family of farmers. A couple of points I want to cover there, but uh, Houston's top of mind because my my brother and my sister-in-law, they live in uh, New Orleans and they just had to evacuate. So they are in Houston. I think they're heading back soon, but they had a, they have family there. So they had to camp out there for a while. Yeah. Houston is famous, candidly, for bringing open arms to everyone along the Gulf that has issues. And uh, Katrina, Ida, we have been known for bringing people in. In fact, I believe during Katrina, I think 100,000 people ended up wow. moving into Houston uh, full time. So uh, yeah, it's a great city. It's an international city. It's an entrepreneurial city and a city with a huge heart. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting because I, I was looking in your background and you've got decades of experience in energy. <laughs> and so I, I imagine it's a topic that's always top of mind for you. And, and given what, what happened recently, I, I just read there was a natural gas plant, I believe, built in New Orleans that was supposed to kick in when this happened and it didn't. So I'm wondering how you think about these challenges that we face going forward, especially, you know, with, with everything that's happening and, and all these these natural disasters just keep getting bigger and bigger or consistently large every year. You know, it's such an important topic. I think there are people that are believers in climate change and then there's people that aren't believers in climate change. 
But I think everybody agrees that the climate cycles have become more violent, uh, for sure, in most of our adult lifetimes. So no matter which camp you're in, it's impossible to argue that things are definitely changing or we're in a, a different trend, whichever camp you fall in. And I think it's impacting all in industries. It's definitely impacting those that are fundamental to human life. We're going to talk about food industry, but to lose a power plant in the middle of a city that needs power is really can be catastrophic, especially for those of your viewers in the North, you don't have to deal with the heat and humidity that they have in New Orleans this time of year. It could be deadly not to have air conditioning or at least some form of, of energy to be able to cool the air. So it's a massive issue. The whole climate change, climate cycle topic has a massive impact on agriculture, huge impact on energy, just a big impact on human life, candidly. And we also saw it recently in Austin as well. And <laughs> there's a different weather cycle there. And, you know, the fact that they have an independent grid. And I'm just curious in your experiences, and, you know, have you, you spent a lot of time at, at GE, you know, studying topics like this. And, and I'm wondering how you think about uh, ways we can think about it differently, or, or is there anything that we can be doing differently to tackle this problem? Yes, I can tell you it's a very complicated and challenging topic, which is why I think we are where we are in certain places. I do believe there are certain regulations that have hindered common sense progress. And I think we see that in the agricultural business as well. And then there's certain regulation that's helped. I think our move, our move quickly or our desire to move more rapidly into renewable energy has cut out a bunch of what I'd call reliable 24-7, 365 power supplies that are less renewable but are more reliable. And that has created some challenges for the grid, the different grid systems around the United States. Uh, I don't think anyone's denying we need to move more and more towards the renewable side of things. And I think we're all on board with that. I think the, the tempo and the pace at which we do that is critical because I think we're realizing, you know, in Texas, we had a freeze that killed a bunch of people this winter. If you can believe that, if you can believe, how is that possible? Texas. Well, that was strange. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of theories as to why that happened, but we didn't have reliable power. And there's a lot of good reasons as to why it wasn't there when we needed it. And so I think we're going to need a common sense approach to our transition to renewables. I think we'll get there over time. But in the meantime, we're going to have some, uh, some growing pains. And I think we're feeling that right now. How was your time at, uh, uh, Brightmark Partners, how was that helpful for you in terms of thinking? I imagine you worked with a lot of different companies in a lot of different industries, and I'm wondering what, what some of the takeaways uh, are there with, with some of the companies you saw. Yeah. So I think in order to get to Brightmark, I kind of need to start at GE. I can do it pretty quickly and work my way through and then get to Brightmark because it's a very important question. So my career started in investment banking. I ended up at, at GE where I had an opportunity to really be a GE in kind of the glory days, kind of during the Jack Welch glory days. I had an opportunity to really learn how to behave as an executive and learn how to operate things. Most importantly, I had an opportunity to build global sales force inside of a fast growth company at, at GE Power Systems. My last quarter at GE, we did over a billion dollars in backlog. So we were doing things all over the world in the energy space, primarily the power generation space. And in that era, People that performed at GE had that pedigree were very popular with recruiters. 
my next logical step was to become a CEO, which I did in 1999. And over the next 14, 15 years, I ran two different businesses, both of which had exits. And we did all kinds of things. Everything from, we did all the air conditioning on the Palm Island, on the crescent of the Palm. If you're familiar with the Palm tree in the middle of the ocean. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We did 120,000 ton air conditioning project there. Many other large scale projects in the Middle East on a commercial air conditioning basis. We did a bunch of HVAC solutions for over 400 power plants all over the world, 33 countries to be exact. And then we also helped many of the large data center companies, builders, solve the HVAC solutions for data centers. So tremendous amount of experience between GE and the two companies I just mentioned. And then Travis Joyner and I, my co-founder and co-CEO, my best friend, we started Brightmark Partners to really pull on his experience and my experience to bring it to bear for entrepreneurs that had businesses that were trying to grow their companies. And so we were investing primarily in water, energy, and agriculture. Those are the areas we were looking at. And I think I'm so thankful that my journey kind of took me where it did because I've had an opportunity to work with so many great people, but really had an opportunity to learn how the world works and what's really important in terms of introducing new technology and getting that technology to stick. And that learning that I went through prior to Brightmark really played huge dividends inside of Brightmark. And so dealing with those early stage companies is so much fun. It's challenging, but it's so much fun because there's so much passion and energy. And now here we are at Local Bounty, which kind of came out of Brightmark and now we've shut everything down inside of Brightmark and we're only focused on local bounty. Yeah, I, I can only imagine the experiences you had, especially at GE. I'm, I, I was, I'm a child of the 80s, so I'm very familiar with the, the GE commercials. We bring good things to life. And it just, it was just that very popular, you know, trademark that it was just prevalent and everyone associated you know, uh, GE with energy, but also on the business side, I mean, Jack Welsh is, you know, w- one of the icons in terms of business leadership. And so I'm, I'm curious, it'd probably be a, a long list, but are there some mentors that come to mind in your time at, at GE that really stand out? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I met Mr. Welch on several occasions and he just had a presence about him that was uh, unique in my lifetime. You just don't meet people like that. I mean, I could give you, I know we don't have enough time, but I could give you several stories about meeting him and being around him that uh, it still to this day inspires me. What's one that stands out? So I went to, they had a college, GE owned a college called Crotonville, where they sent their high pots or high potential people. I had an opportunity to go up there a couple of times. And in one particular case, it was a three or four week long course. And it was all about how to behave as a GE executive and kind of the last week Jack Welch would come and uh, and spend two days with us, which was really neat. They had a bar on campus. So we'd go to the bar afterwards. He'd tell stories. And, you know, he's just a, he was such a, you know, personable, easygoing kind of a person to be around. But here we are, 72 people in a big, you know, kind of a an oval with Jack down at the bottom. And he said, everybody take a minute to introduce yourself. So we're going around the room and One of the people worked at NBC and at NBC, they had a Friday night. I think it was ER at that time. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You probably remember the TV show. He said, my name's so-and-so I'm at NBC in Rochester. And, uh, you know, 
I'm responsible for this and this, basically the whole, the whole operation. And Jack said, Hey, look, I was looking at the ratings last Friday night. They weren't very good or last Thursday night, whatever it was, they were a little off. And I thought, wow, that's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. So, and he did that kind of all the way around what should have taken an hour to do all the introductions took like three hours because he interacted with everybody, including myself on what I was doing. And I'm guessing on the helicopter ride over, he got downloaded. But even if that was the case, just an impressive individual. And I think what it taught me watching that was CEOs have to know what's going on. They have to have a good feel. And I said at the time when I left GE, not long after that experience I just talked about, I sold all my stock at GE. And the reason was we all knew Jack was retiring. And I said to my friends at the time, there's no human being on planet earth that could do what that guy's doing because he had built it and had watched it kind of get to that point. So he had all of these innate feel for what was going on. And uh, I just can't stress enough the importance of my time at GE, not just because of Mr. Welch, but so many other smart people I had the opportunity to work with there. Yeah. Someone like that is, I'm sure leaves an impression and is really the face, you know, it's kind of the, the Steve Jobs or the, the Bill Gates of their generation, but just to have some time in his presence, it, it just is, must've been really exciting, especially as you're coming up and learning. Cause when you're coming up and I, I was at, in corporate for 20 plus years, worked at JP Morgan Chase and E-Trade and my bosses, you know, we, we talk about some of the lessons learned and pass on books and stuff like that. So there's a lot of like learnings that have gotten passed down, I'm sure, multiple generations. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. His legacy lives on through many of us that are applying the parts of what we learned that are appropriate for the businesses we're running. Uh, but there's a whole lot of GE folks out there today that are no longer with GE that are doing big things. And, uh, you know, we all look at GE today. We're like, you know, it's very complicated business. And, you know, their CEO is doing the best he can do, but it's it's a long way from where we were in the mid nineties. Yeah. So then in between Brightmark and uh, Local Bounty, you also took on the role of chairman at Clearus. Yeah, that kind of started actually a little bit, right kind of as we were founding Brightmark, maybe a little bit before. Clearus is a very, what I would say, innovative water technology company and uh, also has a farming component to it which was interesting to Travis and I. Travis and I are both investors. We both sat on the board. Travis just rolled off and I'm still the chairman today. But Clears has a a very bright future in front of us and uh, I'm still involved in that business today. But we have a really strong CEO now and uh, a great board of directors. So it's kind of off to the races. What's the the story of how you and Travis met? (laughs) Well, it's funny. We had some common friends and we were both in Montana and we're members at the same golf club. And there was a, an event at the club and we got, both of us got there late and there were no spots left to sit for the dinner. And so the staff kindly put this little tiny round table, stuck a candle in the middle of it, put two chairs there and said, here you guys go. And we joked to this day, it was our, it was our romantic dinner. You know, we're both married with kids, but we had we had an opportunity just face to face. We'd heard about each other, but we really didn't get, really didn't know each other. And when that dinner, everybody was out of that room, Travis and I were still sitting there talking. And what we learned really quick was his skill set and my skill set are wildly complementary. And from that day to today, which is about 10 years, we've had, I say we live in a zero drama zone. We haven't had an argument to this day. 
And uh, we've just been able to accomplish a great deal with uh, with zero drama. That's really important. And then really something to strive for as, as a business owner myself now, we run a, a podcast production agency, but I'm always thinking about this idea of when and, and how do you have conversations about people that could potentially come on in maybe a founding role. And just like a, a marriage, it's a relationship that has to be cultivated, that has to be grown, that has to be nurtured. And so what would you say if you look back on your relationship as co-founders, like what makes it work and, and why has it worked for, for, for this period of time? It's such an important question because every business deals with this. I mean, we've had companies that were owned by husband and wife. We've had companies that had founders. We've kind of seen it all. I think for Travis and I, what really the things that jump out for us and why we've been able to do a couple of things, be very, very productive and do it in a really positive, fun way. People, my friends are always like, why are you still doing this? Like, what are you doing? I'm like, I love being with Travis. I love growing companies. You know, this is who I am and what I love to do. So it's like that old saying, what is it? I love what you do. You never work a day in your life, something like that. And that isn't to say there are days that are stressful and, you know, you don't go to bed, you know, with your head circling, you know, like, wow, I got so much going on. But for Travis and I, I think, uh, Harry, a couple of really simple things. I mentioned this earlier, very, very complimentary skill sets. Travis is a PhD, highly intelligent, very data analytic driven, and just super, super high intellect. I, on the other hand, I'm more of the guy that has the leadership experience and kind of seen all of the issues, all the people issues, all the supply chain issues. How do you get something built? Do this, do that. And so that combination is very complementary. So that helps a lot. I think if you have two partners that both want to do the same thing, you tend to butt heads a little bit more. And then the second thing is we both have, and we were both raised in a certain way where there's a healthy dose of humility in both of us. And I think no matter what I tell you today about Craig and Travis, Local Bounty is an amalgamation of a tremendous amount of talent. And we're just representing that talent and are the voice to that talent. So I think when you approach every room you walk into in this manner, park your ego at the door, walk in, roll up your sleeves. We're all peers. Let's move things forward. I think things work better. And Travis and I are definitely leading by example on that front. How would you describe your leadership style? You know, I guess the way I see myself is I kind of see things other people don't see. And it's clear as day to me that what role the CEA industry is going to play. It's just crystal clear. So the key is, how do I get other people excited about that? How do we populate the company with the right talent in the right place? And then get everybody really excited about the vision. And then candidly, Harry, just get out of everybody's way, you know, and be there when, when something needs to be refereed, but not go overboard and let your talent do what it needs to do. So that's the way I see myself. I'm guessing if you were to talk to other people, I'd say Craig's really a hard, hard person and all of that. I think great leaders do have an edge. I could tell you right now, Mr. Welch had a definite edge. And his whole thing was, you know, top the bottom 10% get exited, right? So he had his own that, yep. way of driving his edge. I think great leaders do have an edge, but I think I think you can have that edge and still have a big heart at the same time. And I certainly certainly strive to do that. And I know Travis does the exact same thing. So we're quite an eye on that. You said something there that you see very clearly the role CEA industry is going to have. Can you talk about that? And as we segue in, into 
local bounty, you know, and how, you know, even CA came on your radar when you started to become aware of what was happening in this industry? You bet. So let's start with the last part. And I think I'll get to kind of my look towards the future. So why did Travis and Craig start local bounty three and a half years ago? And the answer is, as I mentioned at Brightmark, as you brought up, we were looking to make investments in companies, existing businesses. And, you know, we're very structured in the way we do our due diligence. And we like data and numbers and management teams and things of that nature. So we really dug in and we dug in hard because we both felt that it had a massive opportunity just from the ESG angle. And, you know, kind of, we could see kind of what was coming with traditional agriculture and the struggles that they're having there. Maybe that partially helped because I grew up on a farm. I could see kind of how things worked. That was a long time ago, but that played a role in our thinking. So we started digging in and doing our due diligence on those existing businesses. Long story short, what fell out is we couldn't find a business that we felt was investable for Brightmark. And, you know, we view the industry as capital intensive, high growth, global, commodity-based products. All of those things are very much what the energy industry is. If you take a look at the energy industry, capital intensive, global, you've got to have good unit economics and you know it's a global enterprise. So all of the things we learned in the energy industry, we were layering over as we looked at the CEA space and we were disappointed. We were so excited about the space and we were confused too. We started just, we looked at each other and said, you know, why is this the case? What are we missing here? And so we did another round. And if I could summarize the number one reason we did not make an investment in the CEA space as Brightmark was because we didn't feel any of the companies we looked at had enough focus on unit economics. And without unit economics, this goes all the way back to Jack Welch, without unit economics, you don't have a business. You may have a hobby. You may have a great R&D thing. You may have a beautiful facility, but you don't have an underlying business that can deliver products to consumers consistently and returns to shareholders and do better for the environment. You can't do it. So we were disappointed, as I said. So we said, let's see, maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe the industry is missing something. How many companies would you say you researched? At least four in pretty serious detail and several others that just didn't get far enough. Sure. And then what I would say on top of that is, as we were doing that research, this was the first part of your question, the vision for what CEA could be really started to emerge for us. And we started to get more and more excited about the space and less and less excited about what we were seeing in the space. And so that left us with quite a conundrum. What are we going to do? We have Breitbart, we're rocking and rolling, but this is a big miss. And this is, there's going to be bees. There's going to be bees, billions that are going to be invested in this space on a global basis. The TAM alone, just for leafy, for, you know, what I'll call, let's say perishables in that space is 30 billion in the U.S., Less than 1% is indoors today, right? So the TAM, we just kept seeing the TAM, the TAM, the TAM. And then we started looking at unit economics, unit economics. And it was all, if we do this, if we do that, it's out here, right? 
I'll just pause there for there's there are some folks that are still learning some of the terms. So TAM is a total addressable market <laughs> just for folks paying attention at home. Yeah. Thank you, Harry. Yes. So the total addressable market is 30 billion in the US. So massive markets. And that's a lot. And globally, obviously, much, much bigger than that. So yeah, just I didn't mean to interrupt you as you were talking about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I just both Travis and I started getting more and more excited about the market opportunity and what was there and less and less excited about the unit economics and the lack of focus on the unit economics was really the bigger issue. So we looked at each other and said, I think it's time to start a business. And uh, we systematically did two things. We started to unwind everything at Brightmark and we started to really ramp up our effort at Local Bounty. And that was about three and a half years ago. So yeah, it's really interesting. And um, did you know that the opportunity was so big and as you started moving further into this and researching it and, and realizing that you would have to build something that there's no way you could do that and bright mark at the same time? Correct. Yeah. Just from you know both of our past experience, I don't like people that dabble. I don't like dabbling. I think dabbling is the, uh, is the enemy of progress. I think you can do a certain amount of dabbling when you're at a certain point, but if you're going to do something like local bounty, it's all hands on deck. It's full time. And you know, I could sit on, you know, a board, but that's about it. That's about all the time I've got. And so you've had a lot of experience leading and building up companies. How do you think about this? If, if it's different, if it's not, but quickly scaling up a company, because it's something I always think about also as, as we, you know, we start to grow as well. Like, where do you look at in terms of key hires? And, and at that point, do they take over and, and help with the scaling? Or I'm always really curious, like how, new ventures think about, you know, personnel when it comes to scaling? Okay. So the first thing I'll say on that is I think today people are more interested in working for organizations that are in alignment with their values. So I just feel very strongly that talent wants to be aligned with what they believe in. And so when we tell the local bounty story, and I'm sure when you tell your story, there is really passionate excitement about the potential for you know growing products that are better for the consumer no herbicides and pesticides just the whole story of CEA generally and local bounty specifically has been really powerful in our ability to add talent okay now the other thing i like is i like to bring talent from all different corners of the world. So not just geographically, but from industry basis. Travis, I come from the energy space. We're looking at things differently. So obviously we had to staff up the ag people, our vertical farming talent, our horizontal farming talent, you know, all of that, our processing talent, all of that. And that's, you know, way down the path. But I'll give you a good example. Our head of construction is ex-Amazon. So who's building more things right now than data center people and people like Amazon, right? Yeah. So why not go get somebody? Now, he doesn't know a lot about ag tech, right? But we've got people that know stuff about ag tech. He's bringing heavy construction experience in. So we've just populated what I like to call all four corners of the business with really talented people that share our values, share the vision of local bounty, are excited about what we're doing and bring unique skill sets that can help us truncate the process and the problems that are inevitably in front of us. Every business. 
Does that just come from experience and figuring out like who are the key hires and, and where are those four, you know, pillars that would need the most focus if this is to succeed? Yes, it is a heavy dose of experience. It helped that Travis and I were involved in so many businesses at Brightmark. It helped that, you know, GE and the two businesses I ran as a CEO from basically from the ground up, all of that builds on itself. So one of the things we look at when we were at Brightmark looking in the CEA space was experience of management teams. Do you have experience putting a billion dollars of stuff in the dirt? Yes or no? If not, who on your team does? And I think, you know, investors should be looking at it in that way, through that lens. And you find there's a lot of technical talent, which is very important. I'm not diminishing the importance of technical talent, but it's kind of like if you just, like I exercise five or six days a week. If I just did one thing on one part of my body, I would look way out of balance. A business is no different. You have to have that talent in all parts of the business in order to be balanced and able to to really solve the challenges that are in front of you. Given what's been happening for the past year and a half, how do you think about differently, if it is different, this idea of people coming to the office and people working remotely? How's that come into play now? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, if you would ask me that question two years ago, I would have said, no way, it's impossible, right? Sounds good, but you know, it's, it's impossible. And yet today... I mean, we commissioned our first facility utilizing FaceTime and Zoom wow. and things like that because the people from Europe couldn't even get to our plant. So, I mean, I think what this does, Harry, to me, is it speaks to the human spirit. Go past local bounty. Look at what we're trying to do. We're trying to change the agricultural world as it relates to these series of products to do things better. And yet we've had everything against us, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, all these challenges. And yet here we are, you know, progressing so nicely through the process. So I do believe there is a magic. We had our very first all hands or let's say leadership offsite meeting in June. And I can't tell you how great it was for me just to be with the team, just to have those little sidebar conversations break bread for dinner, breakfast, whatever. It was, uh, I felt fantastic. But I don't know the ultimate answer on where people need to be located. Right now we're doing a little bit of both and it seems to be working, but we're kind of assessing it as we go along. Yeah, it just seems to be one of those skills that's really important for leaders that do end up having success, this ability to take situations like that, that or essentially black swan events, <laughs> like no one really saw this coming. And I think the people who've had success have that ability to pivot and realize, you know, how quickly do you make a decision, you know, because people were waiting to see how long this is going to last. And then is this something that's long term that you have to account for and build for and maybe change, change course. And I think being flexible, I think is, is a really important trait. I think so too. I also feel pretty strongly that business leaders should have kind of a no excuse mentality. We can make up reasons why we can't do things or we can just do things and do our best and see where we fall. And I think if you bring that into the equation, kind of sets the tone of uh, we're going to do our best to make this happen. But, you know, it's pretty astounding to me, not just local bounty, but a lot of my friends that are CEOs, they've told me their stories. It's, 
it's pretty astounding what people are doing, you know, virtually. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the changes in technology and how people are pushing the limits, even virtual reality. I think I read, uh, I, my friends and I would, would play poker occasionally and, so, and we're all in different parts of the country now. So apparently you could do that remotely now too. <laughs> so yeah. it's amazing what they're going to, what they're going to be coming up with. Yep. I think the ones that can learn to adjust and, uh, and can thrive in the middle of it are going to really have a leg up. So it looks like you're heading into the fourth year with local bounty. You know, what have you changed anything in terms of how you started and your mission there and given like how the climate's changed or anything how in terms of how fast you're growing? What's been some of the key takeaways and lessons? Yeah, I'd say the first two years were really more of just kind of getting our feet under us, really trying to understand technology, trying to understand the whole unit economic dynamic and understanding kind of and really putting time in on the scaling of the business. So we kind of, we, we like to talk about going slow to go fast. Uh, I think a lot of people go fast and they're like, oh my gosh, I now have this monstrosity. How do I get it to run right? You know, we've kind of taken the other approach to kind of go, go slower at first, really kind of get our feet on our ground and then really get after it. So our first facility has really only been running for a year and a half. And that plant has taught us so many great lessons and we started small right? It's a smaller facility. We're currently expanding it by a little more than two times. And then our next facility that'll break ground here, not too far from now, uh, will be about three times the size of our first expanded facility. So what that's allowed us to do is really work out all the kinks on a small scale, okay? And then be able to go to that bigger scale knowing what we're going to get, okay? That's really key. And I think multiple benefits to that, Harry. Number one, you could do all that very capital efficiently. So where others in this space have raised hundreds of millions of dollars over 10 or 15 years and are in two to three to 400 grocery stores, local bounties raised a fraction of a fraction of that. And we're in over 400 grocery stores today with our one facility. That's impressive. So we are very capital focused we like to call ourselves good stewards of capital or capital efficient. And we take pride in that because we were investors. So, you know, we don't want to just be raising capital and then doing R&D ex- experiments. We want to kind of know what we're getting. We'll be doing plenty of R&D, trust me. So, but we won't be doing it with our business operating, meeting customers' needs. So that's just a different mindset we brought into the business. So I would say go slow to go fast. I would say what we've learned. You know, as your listeners probably know, Local Bounty's in the process of going public via SPAC. And I think the quality of our investor base, which includes Cargill and uh, other high quality people that are in our in our pipe, our private investment in a public entity, part of the, the SPAC, that quality of that pipe is directly, what I would say, directly proportional to the technology and our ability to deliver. So the unit economic side of the equation has been just a massive focus for us. And really, it's not just Travis and Craig. It's everybody in the business. It's the people on the ground floor as well, very focused on you know what we call unit economics. I imagine that time at Brightmark and working with all those companies has come into play here and has been very helpful for you to have that perspective. 
for sure. I mean, that experience is invaluable. It would be impossible to do this without a whole lot of experience in a couple of areas. One, that. Two, building things. Three, leading people. Just you've got to have that in a, an industry like this that's going so fast and, be, and is so disruptive. You mentioned being good stewards, and I was reminded of the fact that you were supporting the uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals as well, which I thought was was really interesting and admirable as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'd love to. I feel like, and Harry, maybe I could turn around and ask you this question when we're done. I feel like ESG and sustainability is moving away from what was more philanthropic before and starting to have a little bit of an edge to it. And I think the UN SDGs are really, really a great step in the right direction. So local bounties all in on that. First of all, CEA is a poster child for sustainability as an industry in general, okay? 95% less water, land, herbicides, pesticides, carbon footprint, local to the consumer, all that stuff. Lots of reasons why CEA is a sustainability winner. However, at Local Bounty, the twist we're going to take on this, our chief sustainability officer is a former CEO in the energy space. He went out and got his GRI certification, and we are getting very, very granular on our metrics. So we directly touch on 10 of the 17 UN SDGs directly. Indirectly, we touch on all 17. But that's not enough for us. The way we're looking at this is to go from philanthropy to where we are now, where there's a lot more interest to where consumers actually purchase products based on the impact that product had on the environment. And let me give you a picture of my vision for the consumer. Next time you're in the grocery store, go into the produce section and stand in front of the lettuce section and ask yourself, do you know what these products went through to get onto this shelf? Do you understand the impact that it's had on the environment? Do you understand the difference between this, this, and this, all that are quote unquote the same? The answer to that question is a gargantuan lack of transparency at the consumer level. So what Local Bounty is going to do is measure our sustainability, our impact at the plant level one day and be able to say to the consumer, here's a QR code, hit on that, look at how this plant went through the process and what happened. Now, because our unit economics are as good as they are, our sustainability metrics will be better. So it all comes back again to that unit economic. If you could grow a plant more efficiently, you're by definition using less energy, less water, less labor per plant, less cold chain, less, less, less. All of that goes into that one purchase decision. It's going to be very, very powerful. Today, that transparency isn't there. In the near future, that transparency will be there. And Local Bounty as a brand, we want to be the brand that people look to and trust to say, those guys are doing everything they can to cut the impact down for this head of romaine lettuce I'm about ready to buy. I'll definitely be doing that next time I'm in the, <laughs> the produce aisle. Yeah. <laughs> it'll, it, it'll be hard not to, but I think it is 
interesting that whole point of it's not that it's a dirty little secret but it's not as upfront and and center and top of mind for people because i think they just assume you know there's just a bunch of you know clamshells right and like even the packaging like what's where's that going when it's done and then where's that coming from and what's the impact for there and i think taking a active role and um a leadership role in in, in sustainability i think is going to really uh, set local bounty apart Yeah, we agree. And the brand thing too, the brand's really important. I think consumers, I know I do. When I go into a store, I have my brands that I like. And for whatever reason, I'm connected to that brand and I buy that versus that. I just do that. If you think about the produce section, there's not a lot of branding there, right? It's kind of a brand, it's kind of a brand negative space, right? There's just nothing really there to, to aspire to. And it's our goal to kind of change that. I think too, it's important for the listeners to hear as well, Harry, there will be multiple winners in the CEA space. It won't, it's not like a local bounty or nothing, right? We're rooting for all of our competitors and really rooting for the whole industry. So we wish everybody well. It's just, we believe kind of the way we started and where we're at, we've kind of coming at this from a different angle. So we're trying to draw the contrast for your listeners, recognizing that the market's so big, there will be multiple ultimate winners. And that, what I love is that th- that's been a consistent thread throughout all these interviews that everyone that I've spoken to, to a person, to a leader agrees that the scope of the problem is so big that it's an all hands on deck moment and that everyone that's contributing to this space, regardless of the size of the company or, or the initiative, I think uh, it's what we need at this time because, you know, it's there's a, there's a di- dire need for local access to food, fresh food, and, and just covering all the topics you, you touched upon when we were talking about sustainability, I think the more people that, that are doing this, the more conversations we're having about this, I think uh, it's all needed and all important. Agreed. I think the whole industry in general has a, I would say a huge responsibility to get this right and to get this into the system. And, you know, it motivates me every day. I can tell you that because, you know, it's funny. We ship product to one of our investors. I'll leave his name out. And he's a unbelievably accomplished individual, former CEO of a big publicly traded company, worked for one of the top investment banks, one of the top three at a top investment bank. And it, I think it was over like Easter break or something. And we shipped him a whole bunch of local bounty produce for the Easter weekend. And he called me and he said, you know, my two daughters said to me, dad, we've always been proud of you, but we never really knew what you were doing. And we thought you were like in the oil thing. And you know, we don't like oil and all that. And after they had eaten some local bounty lettuce, they said, wow, dad, we're so proud of what you're doing and you're working to make our lives, you know, this next generation. Right. And I think a lot of us just feel that way. Like the time has come for this to happen. We can compete head to head at a price point with better ESG and a better product. Okay. So we can grow it more sustainably. It can taste better, have better texture, last longer at the same price point. The time has come for these products to happen. Yeah, and as you mentioned that, there's a this is just an education that needs to happen as well and educating consumers as to the differences and what quality fresh <laughs> produce tastes like because I think we're just all accustomed to like heads of lettuce. I mean, I again, like I grew up in the 80s, so <laughs> I'm sure the stuff that I was tasting and, and trying back then is, is you know, leap years before what's available now in terms of freshness and, and, and quality. Right. And I think there's a lot of great coming in this space for consumers. I think the other thing too, I know some consumers look to lettuce, for example, we keep picking on that. 
and they're saying, I'm going to have a salad. Today's Wednesday. I'm going to have a salad on Friday or over the weekend. I could go ahead and buy that head of lettuce now, right? Yeah. Otherwise, they got to have line of sight on when they're going to have that lettuce. Yeah. Our products, you could buy that head of lettuce and know I'm going to have a salad in the next month, right? I'm going to have a salad in the next month. That product's going to last and be ready to go whenever I want that salad. And that's a game changer for the consumer. You know, I have those little mini carrots in my fridge. Whenever I get a snack, I walk over and have a couple of little mini carrots. That's the way I think we're going to start thinking about these products because they're just grown closer to the consumer. They're grown without all the stuff on them. They aren't being triple washed with some chemical concoction. We don't know what it is. And it's just better. Bottom line. Yeah. I, I think uh, people assume when they hear terms like triple wash, they, they think that that's a good thing, but they probably have to do a little bit of homework as well. What's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? So many good ones. You know, I think one of the questions we get frequently is, what are your thoughts on international and what are your, how do you see this playing out internationally? And so we have a plan in place. The plan is primarily, you know, the 17 States in the Western United States uh, to get us to a certain critical mass. We're very focused on that plan, the whole team. However, this challenge is a global challenge, which was one of the things Travis and I were really pulled to because, you know, I have a lot of experience all over the world. I've lived in, you know, many different uh, regions, Latin America, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, have been all over the place. And I think this is an international opportunity. Remember, Cargill is in under the tent with us. They're an international business. So it's inconceivable to think we would not have some type of an international platform at some point in time. So right now, our focus is in the U.S. specifically, and really, you know, again, go slow to go fast. And then I think you'll see local bounty a presence in multiple different regions of the world over time. I'm curious, you mentioned that the, the topic of, of stress earlier in terms of like, you know, high stress situations, and especially when you're moving pretty fast, just personally, how do you manage that on a day-to-day basis? Oh, well, exercise is one. I think that's a big one. I think staying grounded. I have an amazing family. My mom and dad live not too far from me. My my wife and her mom are, are my wife lives here. Obviously, her mom lives on our property with us. I have kids. Kids are a great way to, uh, you know, to help you forget everything that happened uh, during that day in particular. I think, though, too, this is another learned experience over time. The phrase I like to use is never too high, never too low. So find yourself in trying to top off those peaks and, you know, lower out, you know, try to minimize the valleys a little bit. And I think what that does is put you in a better frame of mind. The other thing that helps is having talent. Talent helps spread the stress around a little bit. If you're feeling super stressed and nobody else in your company is, you got an issue there, right? So you need to either have the wrong people or you're not delegating appropriately. So, and that's a trick to the trade as well. But let's face it, anything that's disrupted anything is is stressful. It's not easy. That's why it takes somebody that has a broad skill set to do it. So we're not an application. We couldn't just program something and change the game. This is a little more, I'd say a little bit more old school than that. This is at the end of the day, still feeding people. And, but yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, but one, Travis, I like to say this to everybody, you own your own balance. I'm not responsible for your balance, but I will tell you a, hundred times a day, if you need me to, you need to be in balance. 
take your balance, control your own balance. But it, it's sometimes easier said than done. Yeah, so true. What's uh, something you've changed your mind about recently? As it relates to local bounty or in life? Anything, in life. yeah. In life, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. With local bounty, we have such a clear focus. It's not a whole lot changing there. We do have quite a bit of IP in the work around our technology. And we're kind of evaluating how deep we want to go there. We haven't really changed course, but it's kind of on the radar. I have put my amateur car collection on hold. I've been buying these old Ford cars. So I haven't I haven't been doing any of that. I can assure you of that. So uh, what's, what's one of your favorites? I have a 71 Ford Bronco that's oh, nice. just spectacular. I love it. And then I have a 63 Ford Falcon that's really in really good shape. So okay. yeah, those are fun. I've, been, I've enjoyed that. But I right now, I just don't have the time. It'll have to happen at some other point in time. I imagine that's a good way to direct uh, excess stress. <laughs> 100%. I have an old barn on our property. I have the cars in there and I'll go out there and tinker around, you know, on a weekend or something. So it's a good place to go. I saw that uh, you were recently featured, uh, the company's re- recently featured in People as well. And I'm wondering, as in terms of thinking about it from a mass market perspective, obviously, you know, the, the press, the trade press is, is always good. But when you can start to appear in mass market publications, I imagine that's a great opportunity to, to educate the broader audience as to what's happening. Yes, for sure. And I think it goes back to this whole transparency thing. I think people don't know what they're eating. I think people don't know what they're putting in their bodies. And that goes for me too, you know, because local bounty isn't in Texas. So I don't know what I'm getting at my local grocery store. I'm not sure. So, you know, I think that just raising the awareness for people to understand there there's something out there that's that's happening that is a game changer for their families. I think the research we've done as it relates to people, and one of the reasons we named the company's local bounty is when we were doing our research and our due diligence, we kept hearing over and over again, local, the word local, like consumers wanted local product. Retailers wanted to have local product because produce is one of the things that pulls people into the grocery store. You don't think about going to the grocery store to buy Skippy peanut butter. You're going to the grocery store because they have great produce right? Typically, or a good meat or, you know, some specialty thing. So I think, you know, that whole kind of transparency thing, the whole thing around being local really became a big part of what we wanted to do. And most customers are thinking local, and then they're thinking about what's best for their family. And all of that has to kind of mesh with their, with their budget. And so when you could touch on those three things, you're going to have a game changer. And I think being able to expose local bounty to, you know, a people type of a publication, I think begins to, I guess, raise that awareness, uh, which is overarchingly positive. Yes, yeah, it's a really good story. Time flies, <laughs> as always, during these interviews. Wow, it's already over. I can't believe it. Yeah, but uh, I really, I'm glad we got the chance to to connect. And I'm, I'm really inspired by what uh, you're doing at Local Bounty. And it's so interesting to see how you've decided to tackle this problem based on all your time and with all your leadership experience, your time at, at GE, your time at Brightmark. It feels like you've been uh, preparing for this role in terms of like getting ready to address a challenge that we're all experiencing, not just in this country, but a- across the globe. And I'm sure there's a sense of pride in terms of the work that you do and, and excitement about what you're, the, the change that you're leading at, at Local Bounty. So I really appreciate you sharing the story and I'm, I'm excited to see you know what's next on the horizon for you guys. Harry, thank you so much. And again, I'll close by just saying thank you 
for all you you're doing and your firm is doing for getting the message out there. It takes a, a village, as they say. And, uh, you know, whenever you want to chat about the industry or local bounty, please let me know. And uh, just great to be with you today. Yeah, likewise. And then we'll direct folks to the local bounty. That's and that's bounty spelled with an I. And we'll make sure that's included in the show notes as well. Thanks again, Harry. So great to be with you. Thanks, Frank. Special thanks to our season four title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, make sure you reach out to them today. The best part about it is that their service is free and it's because they work on behalf of their partners. So head on over to cultivated.com. Just leave off the last E. That's C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash VFP15. Another reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next week for my conversation with Samantha Johnson, director of the aquaponics programs at Commonwealth Charter Academy. That's a really great conversation, and I was really inspired to see all the work they're doing there. So make sure you check that one out. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Until we chat again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.